Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm James Esposito, and this is New Books in History. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. I just finished talking to Greg Jenner about his new book, A Million Years in a Day, A Curious History of Everyday Life from Stone Age to Phone Age. This book was released by St. Martin's Press in 2016. Hi, I'm James Esposito, and this is New Books in History. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. I just finished talking to Greg Jenner about his new book, A Million Years in a Day, A Curious History of Everyday Life from Stone Age to Phone Age. This book was released by St. Martin's Press in 2016. Jenner's book shows how our everyday habits and routines have roots in deep history. From the toothbrush to the mobile phone, Jenner tells the story of the unlikely actors, fortuitous accidents, and distant locations, which led to our modern material world. Jenner's humorous take on the origins of the everyday is both charming and a delight to read. It was a pleasure to talk to Greg, and I hope you enjoy the show. Today we will be speaking with Greg Jenner about his new book, A Million Years in a Day, A Curious History of Everyday Life, From Stone Age to Phone Age. Hi, Greg. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, Before we begin with the text, I want to ask you a few questions. Uh, so first, what made you decide to become a historian? I've, I've always loved history, I think, from a young age, and um, I always found it particularly interesting that uh, my background is I'm half French, half British. I'm okay. probably more British than I am French. My, my accent, my French accent is rusty. Um, but growing up, I was acutely aware of the way in which stories and narratives would be um, sold, uh, depending on who you were and where you were from. And I always found that slightly curious as a, as a kid, and then you become a teenager and you become a bit more sophisticated. And then by the time I reached sort of 18, 19 and thought about which degree to do, I was quite certain that history would be the thing for me because it just seemed like a really interesting subject to get to grips with because it's, it's so important, it's so vital, it's fascinating in its own right because it's the study of humanity and every subject under the sun has a history. You know, no, matter, no matter what you care about, whether it's fashion, food, sport, uh, politics, they all have a history. And of course, to study history is to study people. And I've always loved people. I'm always, I'm a people watcher. I'm one of those sort of terrible sitting at the back of the bus, making notes and other people's conversations kind of guy. And it just struck me as a subject that would give me a sort of great pleasure but also that needed to be something that would be, you know, something that would give me a purpose in life and something I felt would be important and something I could do that would be useful and feel like I had a sense of purpose to be a historian and to think about these questions and to share them with people. Okay. I, I read um, about you, I was reading your biography and you were saying that, or in your biography it said that you were interested in doing, um, I believe, a 
uh, medieval or classic classics career, and then you decided to do public history. Yeah, uh, is that where this book come, came from, or, or was it your your um, work in the entertainment industry in Great Britain, or or, or um, where did this actually um, kind of come from? When once you had decided that, oh, I'm going to be a historian. Yeah, so I, I wanted to do a PhD. Um, the plan was to do it in America, actually. I'd, oh, interesting. Uh, I had all I um, as an undergraduate at York University. I had. Done. I did archaeology and history as an undergraduate degree because I love interdisciplinary stuff. I've always been really interested in more than one aspect. And we had some Harvard students who came and joined us when we did our archaeology dig in Wales on an Iron Age hill fort. And I loved how they were full of questions and they were rigorous and they were thoughtful and they seemed to have pockets of knowledge that I didn't have. They, they seemed to be doing physics. You know, they were, they were majoring in archaeology or majoring in anthropology but they had physics and mathematics and languages and drama as part of their education. And I loved that. I, thought, I thought, found that really inspiring and interesting. So that inspired me at York to try and pursue a more broad uh, canvas of education. So I managed to pick up a few philosophy classes and did a bit of anthropology and linguistics and languages and art history. And then during my master's, uh, again, I did medieval studies MA, which is an interdisciplinary Subject. So you're, you're studying the medieval past, but you do it through a number of disciplines, history, archaeology, art, history, linguistics. And the plan was then to do a PhD in medieval literature, uh, particularly comedy. Uh, I might, I've always loved comedy. I, as you may have spotted in the book, I have a tendency to write jokes. And I find comedy a really interesting subject from an academic point of view. I, I find the structure of jokes, the meaning of humour the way we deploy it, and the question of whether there's such a thing as an innate cultural comedy or whether jokes are universal, all of those things I found really fascinating. And I wanted to do my PhD in that, but I simply couldn't afford it. Um, mm. So the plan had been to go to Harvard. That was too expensive. I thought about doing it in York or in, uh, uh, down in London. Still couldn't really afford it. And I thought, well, I love history. I think it's really important. My instincts are towards pop culture, movies, comedy, um, entertainment. I wonder if actually I can find a purpose and find a way to be a historian that lets me celebrate these other things I love and use them as a vehicle for sharing my love of history. And so I ended up in the TV industry um, making initially documentaries. This is about 12 years ago. Making documentaries, then I went into historical dramas, which is great fun. So working in historical dramas, which are based on facts, but of course you're you're telling stories and you've got you've got actors and scripts. So it's a whole other performance piece. But the thing that was most crucial for me was my role on the show Horrible Histories, which is uh, perhaps not well known in the States, but in the UK, it, it, it's a sort of huge thing. Uh, it's a comedy program for children mm -hmm. that is factually accurate, but it's basically Monty Python for kids. OK. <laughs> which is a really hard thing to get your head around, actually. And when I explain it to uh, Americans, Canadians who haven't seen it, they kind of go, what? How, how does that work? So well, Wasn't Terry Gilliam a historian? I, I yeah. believe that they are, were some historians on the Python, so that makes sense to me. And, and, you're absolutely, and actually, my master's thesis was on uh, medieval depictions of King Arthur in cinema. And I oh, okay. focused on Holy Grail and Monty Python because I was really interested in the way in which the medieval age is constructed through entertainment narratives. 
and how we think mm-hmm. about the past and how we use entertainment to try and structure notions of the past, particularly the medieval era. And, and so, yeah, I was absolutely reading Python uh, critically, having a lovely time. And several of the Pythons were uh, historians, um, mm-hmm. most notably Terry Jones, who still to this day writes history books. So Horrible Histories gave me the platform. I've done that for eight years. I'm still doing it now. And it's a factually accurate sketch comedy show for seven to 11 year olds. Um, but it crossed over and it became a cult classic for adults as well. And you can, they're all on YouTube and, and we've won an amazing number of international awards, which is incredibly exciting and I'm so proud of it. But the thing that I'm most proud of is that children are falling in love with history because of the show I make. And so having achieved that, having made history accessible for seven-year-olds, I suddenly realized, well, maybe I need to be doing that for adults as well. Because actually, okay. perhaps comedy can be deployed for adults. Perhaps there's more ways of engaging with adult audiences other than the conventional history documentary or the conventional history book, which I love, of course, but not everyone does. So the idea for the book came about from the success of using comedy as a vehicle for delivering factual information about the past. And I thought, right, how can I make a book that is fun, accessible, factually rigorous and accessible to you know, a wide range of people. Mm-hmm. I, I will say anecdotally in, in my sort of day-to-day life, uh, my colleagues don't care about history at all. However, if I make a good joke or a pun or a quip, they love it. And I, I think that really works well um, just sort of generally for historians, especially in this book. Um, one of the best things about this book is that you structure the text in terms of a day, so it's sort of immediately legible to, you know, anybody. Uh, I read this on a Saturday, and, and I sort of picture it in my mind as my typical Saturday. Um, why did you set the book up this way? Why did you explore everyday life from the lens of uh, a sort of average day in the 21st century? Well, the whole principle of the book is to try to be accessible and to try and find ways to make history familiar. Uh, to people because one of the biggest complaints I get from people is they uh, is that they find history dull and irrelevant they, they say history why, why should I care about history what's it got to do with my life today and of course we're historians we know that our lives are built upon the past you know our language our the clothing we wear the buildings we live in they're all from a different era they all have a, a cultural or even a physical legacy from the past so I realized that actually what I needed to do was find not just a way of making the book sort of interesting and you know light and bubbly, but actually to give the book an architecture, a structure that would be immediately familiar to anyone who read it. And so I thought, well, what's, what are we familiar with? And actually, you take a day and we all start our day the same way. We all wake up in bed probably with the alarm clock going off next to us and we sort of smash it with our <laughs> anger. <laughs> and maybe we sort of get up bleary-eyed and, and sort of shuffle off to the bathroom to maybe go to the loo. Or we grab some breakfast or come downstairs and switch on the radio or the TV. And so it dawned on me that really this was the best way to make history accessible, was to say, actually, it's not history at all. It's your life. It's today. It's Saturday in 2016. But actually, it isn't. All the things you do every single day today, people in the past did them too. 
And so we're going to find the comparisons and contrasts and we're going to track where your day has come from. So, yeah, the, the design of the book really is to make it immediately comfortable and familiar for someone who's never read a history book before, but also mm-hmm. enjoyable to someone like yourself, who, of course, reads history books every day. Uh, <laughs> and you're, you're perhaps blasé with this, but I've, seen, I've met so many people who have never read a history book. That, yeah, that worried yeah. me, and I thought, right, well, maybe I can do something to help that. That's great. Well, that, that's that's dig into the book then. Um, your book is 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 hilarious, and that's that's let's get into into time. Yeah, you know, time. There's big time. There's small time. There's clock time. You start like like you said uh, with with you kind of throwing the the alarm clock or smashing it or whatever. But but really, you use it as a way to sort of talk about how we define time, how time has been measured historically, and how it is often uh, not very reliable. Our ways of managing time, understanding time, have not been particularly reliable in the past, but they they were powerful. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I found surprising when researching the book, and actually, you know, and when I share this with other people, they find it surprising too, is just how subjective time the way we measure time is really there's a sort of arbitrariness to the rules of what we might think of as physics when we apply measurement to time itself because so much of what we do today is born of compromise uh it comes about from people sort of scrabbling around trying to make sense of how to structure a day or how to structure a week and they came up with various theories and some of them we still use. So the fact that our day is 24 hours and there are 60 minutes in an hour, we get that from the ancient Babylonians who lived in Mesopotamia 4,000 years ago because they are, their mathematical system was duodecimal. They thought 12 was much more mathematically um, more useful, really, 12 than 10, because you, you can do more with it. You, it's divisible by 1, 2, 3, 4, 6, 12. And there were 12 lunar... Um, periods in the calendar and the cycle when you look up at the moon and and so they thought well okay 12 is the numerical cornerstone of the universe we'll do everything in 12 so 60 minutes in in an hour um, 60 seconds in a minute 24 hours in a day that is something we carry around every day in the 21st century that we get from the occupants of Iraq from four five thousand years ago in the Bronze Age and that's amazing. That's extraordinary because, of course, we might not think we have anything in common with them. But there are other ways of measuring time. And uh, one of the visions that people used to struggle with is when do you start a new day? Do you start at midnight, mm-hmm. which is what the Romans did and which is what we do? So we use a Roman model. Do you start it at dawn, uh, which is what the ancient Egyptians did? Do you start it at dusk when the sun goes down, which is what Jews do? Orthodox Jews still do that. And it's what the ancient Celts did. Uh, so even then, it's quite a strange thing because we might we might just imagine that midnight is the standard cutoff point. Of course it is, but why should it be midnight? It doesn't. There's no rule for it. There's no there's no universal constant out there in the cosmos that tells us it must be midnight. It's simply a system that we've decided amongst ourselves over the years. Uh, that's the best way of doing it. And there were lots of arguments. And in the 18th century in France, there was an attempt to change that. In um, the 1790s, during the French Revolution, they try and bring in decimal time. 
which sounds great, <laughs> but it's an <laughs> you know it goes terribly wrong. They're trying to bring in ten hour days, or what they're called decades, decades, uh, and ten day weeks, and people are absolutely baffled. They're sort of they're sort of staring at their watches, going, "Well, I don't understand what's happening." Um, there's ten day weeks, there's ten month calendars. They rename the months. They're trying to impose what they think is an empirical, scientific, rationalist uh, new kind of you know, enlightenment science onto the, onto the world. They're saying, come on, this is the 18th century. We, we've got this. We can do this. Mm-hmm. But people are baffled by it. And people put up a big struggle. And after 18 months or 14 months, depending on which system you were using, <laughs> they <laughs> yes. abandon it. So it's quite surprising, perhaps, that even in the 18th century, there was this attempt to create a new way of measuring time. But that wasn't the last attempt, of course. We still, to this day... In America, in Britain, we still move the goalposts, uh, to use a British phrase, in that we have daylight saving time. So yes. we, will, we put the clocks forward and back. This is an idea that came about uh, independently in two separate places. There's a New Zealander called George Vernon Hudson. Uh, but the most influential guy was William Willett, who was uh, a British, um, sort of, quite a sort of nice chap who built houses for a living. And he... I think about 1907, top of my head, uh, he put forward this idea of moving the clocks in order to have more daylight in the summer. And he was ridiculed. He was a punchline. People said that's a ludicrous idea. Why would he want to do this? But he was right, actually, because, of course, sunshine gives you joy and it gives you light and it gives you safety. You know, so traveling home at night on your bicycle, you're less likely to be hit by a car if you can go home in the light than if you go home in the dark. So even in the 20th and 21st century, we still struggle to try and be universal with how we measure time. And and it's still a really problematic issue for us. And it's fascinating because it feels so rigorous to us. It feels so set, but it but it just isn't. It's a human invention. Yes, uh, this interesting uh, uh, part of your book when you're talking about America and how we uh, America yeah, interestingly topical, uh, how we adopted uh, daylight savings time. And uh, the American approach was basically, uh, leave it up to the states, which is how we do things here. <laughs> but <laughs> you have this interesting bus a bus route. It goes through, what you see, Virginia, West Virginia. What, what was the bus route? You can talk about the bus yeah. route and, and how it time traveled almost. Off the top of my head, I think I think it's Steubenville. So I think it's, uh, I think it's Ohio into West Virginia, perhaps, but it's uh, the bus okay. itself went through something like eight different time zones. But all it was doing was, was driving a few miles up the road. In the 1960s, when, you know, America's at the yeah. peak of its power, you know. It, Absolutely. It, um... You know, rock and roll <laughs> waves. You've got, you know, US TV networks are, are putting out sitcoms. Everyone is sitting down watching brand new technologies like television. And yet a bus traveling a few miles from one state to the other state is entering into multiple time zones and exiting them in a space of a few minutes because the federal system uh, allowed different towns, cities and states to choose which time zone they would be in. And they chose them on kind of arbitrary local reasons. And they sort of said, well, we, we want to be an hour ahead. But the next state would say, well, we don't. We're, we're quite happy over here. So there's this sort of chaotic system which is a nightmare for the TV schedulers, um, 
or schedulers, I think you say in America. Um, it's a nightmare for airlines. It's a nightmare for Greyhound buses and for uh, even uh, people in their cars. You know, they're trying to get through rush hour traffic. And if you cross state lines, you'd hit more rush hour traffic because they'd be an hour behind. And so, sure. you know, so there's just sort of this problem of um, wherever you go, people would be on a different time to you. You might have two shops in the same street that are on different times. You know, you could go to the bank, knock on the door, it'll be locked, uh, and next door would be open. So America had this amazing problem with time. It was called the worst timekeeper in the world by the uh, chief scientist of the U.S. Admiralty, I think, or the Naval Observatory. Okay. So, you know, the States was absolutely one of the, perhaps the most powerful nation on the planet by this point, but it completely <laughs> got itself tangled up in this, from in this point of view, pretty funny, surreal, chaotic system. But at the time, it must have been exhausting and, and really difficult for business and for just basic logistics. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, that's, I guess let's continue with, with, our, with our day. And uh, interestingly, uh, the next, next place you go in your, your, um, uh, your day is to the bathroom. Yeah, and I, I knew we were going to talk about the loo and talk about uh, the, just the latrine and, and the various words and terms we have for uh, going to the bathroom and, and where it comes from and, and, and how, how culturally these things change over time. Yes. Uh, what I was trying to get to grips with quite early on in the book, and it's particularly in this chapter, is just to s sort of say that the language we use today, the words we use, they can be used quite interchangeably sometimes. We throw them around and we're quite happy with our thesaurus and our synonyms to, you know, use different words for the same thing. But of course, a lot of words had specific meanings in the past. They really meant something cultural or class based. And so in Britain, we have many, many, many words for toilets, um, and some of them are vulgar, like the shitter, and some of them, <laughs> some of them are really quite sort of euphemistic, like the water closet, which you know, water closet could be anything. You know, that could be that could be in the kitchen, the water closet. Um, but we have a lot of ones which are common here. Are we, we'd say the the lavatory, the the loo, um, the toilets are probably the three most common. I guess in the states, you guys say the restroom a lot. The bathroom, yes. you know, which we don't say here because that feels oddly euphemistic uh, because we don't rest in the restroom. You know, and so there's sort of interesting linguistic history there as to what does loo mean? Where does that come from? And I, I tried to get into that in the book, but, but actually we don't know. It's, um, it's possibly French. It might be uh, linked to the French word lieu, meaning place and in the 18th century, the French, who were really the pioneers of flushing toilets, uh, they, they called their toilets les lieux à l'anglaise, the, the places of the English, which is kind of an insult. <laughs> They're basically saying that small room where you do dirty business and it stinks. Yeah, it's the English room. So they're saying English people's smell. But maybe they shortened it to lieu. We don't know. The problem is, is that the first use of loo only turns up in the 1920s in English written in. Okay. So really hard to prove. And it might be a brand name for a company called Waterloo Systems. I guess you guys would say maybe going to the John. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think that's, it, that's kind of sort of uh, drawn down as well. Yeah. I think it's bathroom really. Yeah. And, and we have here also uh, Thomas Crapper was one of our great plumbers and engineers. <laughs> and he's kind of been 
I think people assume that the toilet's named after him, but, but it isn't, actually. It's a really old word, crap. The medieval word. He was just named crapper. It was just a pure coincidence that he ended mm-hmm. up as a toilet engineer. So, you know, there's sort of lots of fun to be had there. We're trying to track down where these words come from. And, but, yeah, the fun thing about the toilet chapter was that I do, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm fairly frank with some of my discussions. And, and my use of language is perhaps a little bit more fruity than you might expect in a history book. Mm-hmm. I was trying to be deliberately a little bit provocative, but actually to kind of demystify it a bit. Here in Britain, and maybe in the States, we struggle to talk about bodily functions. We don't talk about toilets very much. We don't talk about that kind of privacy. And yet, of course, what could be more human? What is more essential than the need for hygiene, the need to, to you know, evacuate your body of, of defecation and urination? It, you don't do it you die and mm. the history of humanity and there have been 108 billion people since the dawn of time every single one of those people went to the loo so i sort of thought it's quite important really to get to grips with this and to be yeah a little bit frank perhaps but to say okay come on you know history of toilets is really interesting let's get into this uh yeah there's there's a part i believe uh i i've repeated this uh this, uh, several times is that uh, I believe Queen Elizabeth the first godson invented the first flush toilet in England. Yeah, yeah, and she didn't like him very much. <laughs> he was, uh, to talk about this is very interesting part of the chapter actually. Yeah, he's a cool guy. He's called Sir John Harrington, and he was the godson of, of Queen Elizabeth the first, who uh, is obviously this great queen in English history who reigns for a long time from 1558 to 1603. So she's sort of our She's kind of like our, our Washington or Jefferson in some regards. You know, she's, she's this great servant of the nation. Uh, and she had this godson who invented the flushing toilets, which he nicknamed the Jakes, which is uh, a bit like uh, the name Ajax, which is the sort of ancient classical uh, character from, from Homer. But it's also a pun. Jakes, Jakes is a Tudor word for a toilet. Uh, but he kind of got exiled, uh, well, not quite exiled, but banished from court because he kept writing these smutty poems. Uh, <laughs> pretty, you know, quite offensive. But he's been um, slightly wronged by history because he's actually quite, he's quite cool. When you read his stuff, you realise that he was really interested in public sanitation and the hygiene and health. He was worried about the source of disease. He was worried about people you know, defecating in the streets. And he thought that this was a pretty sensible solution. So he was kind of a sanitation campaigner way back in the late 16th century. But because he was banished from court, uh, he didn't have any influence. And so his idea for a flushing toilet never caught on. The other thing he also invented was the toilet book. He wanted his, oh, really? he wanted his book to, to hang from a chain next to the toilet so you could read it on the loo. So... Uh, when you go to the loo now and you you know pick up a magazine or maybe a, a Sports Illustrated or you you know you, you flick through a, a book you've been sort of browsing through, that was his invention uh, 400 years ago. But uh, unfortunately, he sort of got forgotten by history and has only been rediscovered recently. Um, and in terms of the flushing toilet, it actually really is the French in the 18th century, the late well the late 17th early early 18th century who kind of reinvent the flushing toilet. But, um, but the really surprising thing, actually, is that the excellent hygiene standards that we might expect now were kind of matched a long time ago, back in the Bronze Age. 
and this mm. is back in yes. Pakistan, uh, a civilization called the Harappans, who were really advanced. And four and a half, five, six thousand years ago, even, they had really complicated sewer systems and uh, drainage channels. They had running water to pretty much every home. And they had this system that was not really matched in terms of its breadth, in terms of it being installed across the entire city. It wasn't matched by the Romans and probably wasn't matched again until 19th century Britain. So the extraordinary thing there is that we can, it's quite easy to fall into a Whig history perspective of things getting better. You know, as, as history moved on, progress set in and new ideas improved. What I was trying to do with the book is actually point out that's not really true. The Harappans of the Bronze Age were arguably way cleaner and more interested in hygiene than most other nations or civilizations for a long time in history. Yes, yes. No, uh, you you call back to the Harappans several times in the book. Yeah, they're pretty um, cool. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, wow. OK, they're popping up again and again and again. I think this might be a good time to sort of talk about food and breakfast. You you start out with uh, Kellogg and, and sort of the, the emergence of cornflakes and how cornflakes are sort of strangely related to the asylum and, and sort of related to mental health stuff, as well as sort of changes in diet happening in people's lives over the sort of course of, of, of time. Can you talk a little bit about, about breakfast and how you sort of approach breakfast in the book? Yeah, so... Uh, Breakfast in the book was, uh, I divided slightly in half a little bit in that really you can do a history of breakfast as a meal or you can do a history of food. And I tried to do a little bit of both, which perhaps is cheating. Uh, but breakfast is actually a fairly modern invention in that the word itself is 15th century, so uh, late medieval, and uh, means literally to break the fast. You know, it's a, it's a classic medieval Catholic word. Um, and going through history, you know, the classic breakfast cereal invented by various food pioneers, but most famously the, the Kellogg brothers, that feels like a sort of quintessential breakfasty thing. And the story of cornflakes mm. is really quite funny and surprising because uh, Kellogg himself, or, or rather Dr. Kellogg, uh, yes, he is this sort of, he's a Seventh-day Adventist, he's a very religious man, he is a vegetarian, he runs this uh, clinic at the Battle Creek Sanitarium, which is a, sort of a health farm, and he's treating middle-class patients, celebrity patients as well. But he's also treating people with what he would consider to be illnesses and perhaps even mental illnesses. And he worried that you could get cancer and various diseases from self-abuse, from you know touching yourself sexually, mm. um, and also from diet, he, he worried about sweet foods, he worried about spicy foods. He thought a bland diet was really important. He thought that yogurt enemas were important. <laughs> you know, he used electricity to electrocute his patients. You know, he, he was sort of deploying all the kind of mod cons of the 19th century. And he kind of accidentally, along with his brother, Will, who was an accountant, they kind of accidentally invented cornflakes. And it's a fun story. And, and Dr. Kellogg is trying to deploy it as a sort of anti-masturbation food. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, which is weird. And what happens is his brother, Will, the accountant, realizes actually there's money to be made in this if you add sugar. And of course, for Dr. Kellogg, that is 
that's a big no-no because sugar causes sexy thoughts and you know gives rise to all these problems that he's worried about so it, it kind of breaks their relationship there's quite a complicated falling out between the two men and, and you can see it in the business and legal records between them and eventually they they go their separate ways and so the modern kellogg's company is actually really it's will's company rather than dr kellogg uh so that's a sort of funny story and surprising but also i was looking just at the history of food and looking at the foods we tend to think of as breakfast foods. So, you know, with your cornflakes, you have milk. The history of milk consumption is surprising, actually. Only 30% of the world's population can drink milk. And it's only been drunk for about six and a half, seven thousand years, uh, because that's, a, that's when we developed, it evolved the gene that processes it and, and stops you from developing very painful um, stomach gas, which, you know, can cause bloating and, diarrhea so uh in terms of the history of milk it's a neolithic thing it's really recent it's not you know it's right at the end of the stone age and it's very common in america and europe but it's really not common in asia or east mm-hmm. asia so that's quite surprising and i found that really because you, you grow up thinking milk is normal uh, yeah but it but it isn't we're the, we're kind of we're the minority milk drinkers uh i also go into the history of pork because it's a really important meat, pork, because it was the, the meat of the poor. Pigs are really easy to rear. They gain a huge amount of weight really quickly. They'll eat anything. So you can leave them out outside and they'll just snuffle around eating bark or whatever they find. Uh, you can also quite easily smoke pork, hang it up and keep it for you know, a long time. So for the, the poor in, in the medieval world and the ancient world, bacon and ham was kind of your standard meat but the other the other thing about it of course is that we know that pork is haram in islam it's it's also not kosher in judaism so there's a mm-hmm. cultural association with pork uh which brings it into a sort of whole new category so i go into that a little bit as well uh and look a bit about the history of sausages too because the various attitudes to sausages have come and gone uh, I think I think Socrates was quite suspicious of sausages. Um, <laughs> I think he'd noticed uh, that there's a play in which he is said to have sort of noticed that there were dogs one day and then suddenly the dogs are missing and now there's a sausage stand. And he said, hang on a minute. Um, so sausage, meat, bacon, uh, pork, that's a really interesting area where you can focus in on a single type of meat, a single type of food. And track it through history and say, well, look, this is a, you know, a lot of stuff's changing here and people have different ideas. But ultimately, there are reasons that pork is so common. And, and arguably, some scholars have suggested that the reason Jews don't eat pork is because some have said it's to do with veterinary epidemiology. You know, the fact you can get diseases. But others have said, actually, it's a way of marking yourselves as different from those around you. If you say this is a, this is a meat we do not eat. So by having the Jewish kashrut laws, they're, they're sort of saying this is what we do as opposed to what they do. So, you know, it's really interesting that pork or other meats, uh, and also not just meats, of course, but, you know, the Jewish Islamic laws and also Christian laws about um, fasting and feasting, um, Lent, the idea of not being able to meet, eat meat on a Friday, you know, there are lots of really interesting religious laws and rules that have predominated through history that have influenced the modern world in ways we might not uh, imagine and may not realize. But they're still sort of there. And of course, there are many people 
who are still religious and still observe them. Yeah, I mean, it, there's a really funny uh, uh, section in, in the food thing where you're talking about um, a, a Catholic monks, and they really, really argued quite hard to say that beavers were fish or related to fish so they could eat them on on, uh, yeah. on Fridays or whatever. And it, it's just like that's, that's really like heavy lifting theological, you know, work just to eat like a, you know, eat some, some beavers, you know, it's interesting. Maybe this would be a good time to talk about baths because I, I think there's like this this preconception that in the past people weren't clean or didn't have sort of the same ideas of cleanliness. And you show in your book that sort of ideas of cleanliness kind of go back and forth with time. And actually, like in the medieval period, you, you talk about uh, very interestingly that like public baths were really popular until they were sort of seen as as risque or sort of areas where sort of uh, sexual liaisons could occur. Can you just talk a little bit about sort of bathing and, and the sort of deep history of, of um, baths? Yeah, absolutely. It's, again, one of the things when researching the book, that was the thing that perhaps surprised me the most was, you know, if we go way back, there seems, it seems likely that bathing was practiced in the Stone Age. A, quite, a high percentage of Stone Age caves in which we find art are quite near natural hot springs, which may be a coincidence, but it seems to suggest that people maybe were, you know, setting up their homes nearby to hot water where you can get in and have a, have a bath. Um, the Harappans, we've already mentioned in Pakistan, were obsessed with cleanliness. They had a, a holy religious pool where at the centre of their city they had wells uh, where people could get running water and, and could bathe. Then, of course, you get the Greeks and the Romans for whom water is the kind of, well, certainly the Romans, it's kind of the definition of who they are, really. Romanitas, as a cultural identity, is hugely influenced by the notion of water and the politics of water. Who gets water? Who gets, you know, how does it get distributed? Because they bring it into cities with these fantastic engineering triumphs, these aqueducts. But the Romans bathe universally, all of them, slaves, rich, poor, women, children, uh, men of, you know, high rank, they all go to the baths and these bathhouses are, some of them are quite modest, some of them are vast. So the history of washing in the ancient world is really common and of course, you know, they have heated baths, they have hypercourse systems to give them hot baths, cold baths and this is perpetuated in the uh, medieval Islamic world uh, with the Turkish steam bath called a hammam but Christianity rejects it which is surprising I suppose but what happens is that the early church fathers, particularly St. Jerome, uh, they are looking to differentiate themselves from Romans. They're trying to take Christianity, move it as a, a kind of a separate movement, take it away from paganism. And so Jerome is arguing that bathing is sinful. Uh, you obviously have to get naked, which is wrong. Um, mm -hmm. He's arguing also that there's, there's a kind of virtue in suffering. There's a virtue in being dirty, smelling bad, mm -hmm. in, in having lice, because Christ suffered. And a good Christian should also perhaps uh, not have the sin of vanity or pride. Uh, they should be also equally dirty. And so this idea of what's called alusia kicks in, which is a Greek word meaning sacred grime. Uh, and you start to see it with early monastic uh, movements, particularly in the Middle East and in uh, in kind of the sort of Turkish part of Christianity in the 5th and 6th centuries, 
you see monks refusing to wash, refusing to bathe, taking themselves off, living in caves. Uh, St. Simeon Stylites lives on top of a pole for 30 years, which is bonkers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he's, they're, they're deliberately trying to suffer. And even when you get monastic codes of St. Benedict or some of the other sort of influential fathers, they're, they're really saying, look, if you've got to wash, maybe do it, you know, a couple of times a year, I guess. Uh, wash your hands, wash your face, wash your feet. But the body, really, is not being washed. But what's interesting is that you then see in the Middle Ages, ordinary people are washing a lot. Uh, it comes back through via the Crusades. It comes back into Western Europe. These public bathhouses you mentioned quite quickly develop a, a reputation. They're known as stews. And there is a sort of belief that maybe there are prostitutes working in them. Uh, you can go with your wife or your husband. You know, there is a sort of married couple section, but there's a lot of nudity. There is definitely a sense that people are enjoying the bubbles and enjoying a little bit more than just getting clean. And then what happens is the plague turns up and mm-hmm. there is sort of these quarantine measures uh, and public health. And, and so they're, they're shut down. They're shut down for moral reasons. They're shut down for, for plague reasons. And so you sort of get this seesawing back and forth. The really interesting era, I suppose, is the 17th century, where bathing has come back in briefly, and then it's rejected. So Queen Elizabeth I bathed once a month, whether she needed it or not, as the phrase went, which by our standards is a pretty alarming phrase. Uh, I think we'd all agree that once a month, not enough. She's probably bathing on her menstrual cycle. She's probably bathing when she's um, having her period, but she bathes. Mary Queen of Scots bathes. Mary Queen of Scots' son does not bathe. James I, who uh, is James VI of Scotland and who's nearly blown up by Guy Fawkes, he washes his fingers in a bowl of water and that's it. He instead chooses to change his shirt frequently. So there's a thing in the 17th century called the linen revolution where everyone is wearing linen shirts as a form of underwear and they change their shirt a lot, two or three times a day, but you don't wash beneath the body. What you do instead is you dab yourself with oil rags, lavender rags, rosemary, perfumes. So you're not really washing. What you're doing is sort of deodorizing, I guess. You're, you're spraying yourself with, with, you know, with nature's version of body spray. Um, and the reason this kicks in is that 17th century medical thinkers argue that plague can get into the body through the pores of the skin and that dirt clogs that up stops it happening uh so there's this sort of belief that by washing you're endangering yourself um Mm -hmm. and so francis bacon one of the great um empirical thinkers of the uh, late 16th century early 17th century uh, who's this brilliant polymath he comes up with the idea of a 26 hour safety bath where if (laughs) if you want to bathe you have to be kind of creosoted like a garden fence he covers Mm -hmm. you in sort of oils and cumin and various herbs and spices, wraps you in bandages, and you have to sit there for 26 hours like you've been baked, you know, for an, like, like a marinated chicken or something. Mm, uh, yeah. And this is a sort of preventative measure because baths are dangerous. And so that to us is kind of bizarre because washing, of course, is not dangerous. Washing the opposite is dangerous, surely. But throughout history, people have had different attitudes to what is hygiene, what is, what is cleanliness. 
and in modern India, if you go to certain parts of rural modern India, if you touch an untouchable, who's a member of the lowest caste system, uh, <coughs> sorry, system, then uh, the, the, the cure for that is to gargle the urine and excrement of a cow, which mm. to us, perhaps in America or Britain, would that sounds way worse than touching a human. But in, in Hinduism, the, the cow is sacred. So the notion of cleanliness can often be influenced by cultural ideas, religious ideas, not, you know, there's no germ theory until the 1860s and 70s. So prior to that, notions of clean are dependent on more than just what is dirt and what isn't dirt. It, there's also religious attitudes towards it. Um, so it's surprising and interesting how much history has ebbed and flowed back and forth between really very clean, like the Harappans, and then... Mm-hmm someone like Louis XIV of France, who lived in gorgeous splendour at Versailles, but who never bathed. No, no, no. I, I believe in the book that you said that occasionally he would wash his hands in wine or something. Yeah. Some sort of, you know, splendour, but not really what we would consider, you know, true hygiene. No, people are washing their hands, they're washing their face if they have to, but the body remains unwashed. In fact, Louis's grandfather, I think it is, or maybe even his father, no, it's his father, Louis XIII, says, I take after my father, I smell of armpits. And he says that, <laughs> you know, that's, Louis Thirteenth is happy to say that. And there's no mm-hmm. shame in that. He smells of what a body should smell like. And mm-hmm. that's a really interesting thing that I sort of touch on very briefly in the book, is that chimpanzees rub themselves down with flowers and fruit to give themselves a sort of a more fragrant smell. So humans have been doing that. For a long time, we've been mirroring chimps in, in some ways. So it's sort of a normal practice, but there have been many different cultural attitudes towards what is clean and what isn't clean. Yeah, I mean, uh, just going on that, um, uh, there's a, a part towards the end of the book where we're talking about oral hygiene and, and brushing your teeth. Yeah. And it's one of the best chapters, I think. Uh, could you just talk about how uh, even, even in ancient Egypt there was sort of measures to drill out cavities and to to manage at least manage the pain of of having uh, problems with your teeth and how like it almost in every civilization there is some sort of effort to clean one's mouth even if it isn't by our standards you know uh hygienically adequate can you talk about some of the some of the ways uh uh, civilizations have sort of dealt with this issue yeah well the, the thing that i found really interesting was that dentistry goes back to the Stone Age. The earliest evidence for drilling is 9,000 years ago, again in Pakistan, and uh, the oldest fillings are, were beeswax fillings put into cavities about 7,500 years ago in Slovenia. So that was really, for me, an eye-opening moment. You think, oh my word, that's, that's so long ago. This is, this is people, you know, just about moving into farming and agriculture, but they're kind of, you know, only just about getting out of living in temporary shelters and huts. They're, they're only 5,000 years away from living in caves. And yet people are drilling into their teeth. They're doing basic dentistry. So that set me up by thinking, okay, here we've got a really interesting story, actually. Brushing the teeth, not in any way a modern thing. And so I started tracking it back. And uh, as you say, the Egyptians had various remedies for trying to clean your teeth. Um, ancient India as well, they use a stick called, a, I think it's called Dantakashta. And mm-hmm. uh, in ancient China, also lots of various techniques 
for rubbing the teeth with rags. They have dentists. The oldest named dentist in history is a man called Hezi Ra, who's an ancient Egyptian dentist from about 4,000 years ago. And there are kind of different attitudes to surgery. So the Egyptians didn't really do dental surgery, but they did have orthodontics, which is really surprising. Okay. So they did. Yeah, you know, they tied the teeth together with gold thread. They did have fake teeth. But there's a recent survey done by Manchester University that found that a huge percentage of ancient Egyptian mummies, uh, when you look at them with sort of modern techniques, have real problems with their teeth. Really, really painful, perhaps even life-threatening dental disease. So it's been a real problem throughout history. Ertzi the Iceman, who you may have heard of, died uh, in the Ertzel Alps about, I don't know, 6,000 years ago, maybe 5,500 years ago. He had really bad teeth. Uh, he, he was killed with an arrow in the back, so obviously that's what got him. <laughs> you know, his teeth were really smashed up, and that could have been from a punch-up. He could have been you know, attacked by someone. But also, the way people made bread back then with uh, quernstones, you'd get little bits of grits in your bread, and it would break your teeth. And There are natural acids, of course, in sugar and starches that break down the enamel. So the history of dentistry goes way back and people have struggled a long time. The Romans uh, had toothbrushes, not like the mm-hmm. like we've got, but they used more rags. But they did have mouthwash, not very appetising. Their mouthwash was the urine of a Portuguese boy. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you mentioned that. Why, why Portugal in particular? I, I think I he's really something know. about acidity or something. I'm like, well, you know, Pliny, uh, as we know, uh, whenever Pliny says something, it's always wrong or mostly wrong and it's always <laughs> hilarious <laughs> and oddly specific yeah he had a lot of theories uh, a lot of dental theories uh, we don't know why portugal i wondered if it's something to do with the fact that the it would have traveled a long way to mm-hmm. get to rome and so maybe it sort of got more and more fortified like a, like a fine wine um <laughs> or exotic like you know like fiji water or something yeah maybe <laughs> maybe maybe the fact that the portuguese had a certain diet i don't know it, it, in any case they, they seem to say portuguese urine so i, I tend to jokingly call it pistarine um but um, <laughs> it's, you know that's fairly alarming for us but actually i suppose urine is sterile it might have killed some of the germs in the mouth and so maybe it did have some some techniques so most civilizations that i came across they they you know tried to brush their teeth in some way or, or they they certainly were aware that keeping your teeth healthy was really important and then, of course, you get to medieval dentistry, which is absolutely terrifying and barbarous. They've got <laughs> yeah. ripped out, and, and it's being done by people's, by hairdressers as well. Barber surgeons were, they weren't surgeons at all. They were hairdressers who did a bit of tooth extracting on the side. So the real breakthrough with tooth care really comes in the 18th century, and it happens in France. And uh, there's a dentist called Pierre Fauchard, who really is the first guy to come up with modern orthodontics. Um, he's the he's sort of first person to use a chair, really, in his dentistry. Uh, he's the first person to come up with a um, sort of forceps that are designed for the mouth. He does away with toothworms. Toothworms are something that people have believed in for thousands of years, tiny little monsters that live in your teeth. He proves they don't <laughs> exist. So it's only in the 18th century that dentistry really kind of modernizes, becomes a professional medical discipline in its own right. And of course, when you look at George Washington's teeth. Mm-hmm. He had a, he had appalling tooth problems. He'd lost all his teeth by I think twenty five or so, or maybe he had one left. So he had lots of sets of false dentures made for him, 
out of hippo ivory and gold and bits of human teeth, all kind of, you know, melded together. And they were painful to wear. They didn't really fit in his jaw very well. So he never smiles. You know, when you look at his portraits, he's got this kind of heroic look, which is, you know, the great patriot of America. But it's also a man who, since the age of 25, has had to have constant opiate pain relief because he has agonizing toothache. And I have huge respect for him knowing that, actually, because not only was he a great man, a great war leader, but he also spent his whole life in pain and still managed to be, you know, the father of a nation. So, you know, really quite impressive. But when you see those dentures, you understand, actually, how terrifying bad dental health can be and how much it can change your life. So that's when I think you see the, the movement into dentistry, because it's also the 18th century where people are drinking tea and they're having a lot more sugar. And, of course, the damage is much more extensive to tea. And then by the mid-19th century, you get the origins of um, kind of flossing. The toothbrush is turned up. Uh, the toothbrush is a Chinese invention, but it's reinvented in Britain uh, around the time of Washington, actually. It's invented in prison, actually, which is... Yeah, in prison. Um, you know, if you're in prison, you've got nothing better to do. Invent the toothbrush. And... Um, uh, and I suppose in the 19th century, you see also the, the first sort of use of pain relief. So kind of chloroform and ether and that kind of stuff. So by that point, you start to see modern dentistry. And then most importantly for us, it's not until the 1940s when the U.S. Army does a really important experiment that we get told to brush our teeth twice a day. And of course, by then, they, they've made plastic toothbrushes with softer bristles. So you're doing less damage to your gums, less damage to the teeth. So our hygiene kind of routine that we do every day, twice a day, hopefully, um, that is actually only about 75 years old. But dentistry mm -hmm. and toothbrushing, thousands of years old. So we're really lucky. I mean, this, this is definitely the time in history to live uh, if you want to have good teeth. Yeah, I think, I think you said, I, I don't know if it was in this book or, or uh, another source that I was looking at, uh, were, were you recording someone that said, uh, well, you know, if, if, if you have any sort of doubt in progress, just look at dentistry. And I think there is a little bit of truth in that. Um, yeah, I think it's a PJ O'Rourke quote, I think. Yeah, yeah, O'Rourke. Yeah, and I could, yeah, yeah. It There's, was uh, pretty good. Very nostalgic yeah. about history. Think one word, dentistry. Yeah, That's yeah. Right, I think. It's uh, terrifying to imagine. Um, it, it was also amazing, and you talk about this uh, a little bit, is uh, called... Um, Waterloo teeth, the idea that, um, you know, people in the 18th and 19th century go to cadavers to try to get, you know, pieces for medical experiments, of course, um, but also teeth to put in other people's teeth like Washington, but, you know, like uh, other people because they're missing teeth or, or, you know, they don't have anything that's available. And it, it's, it's, it, I thought it was sort of ghoulish, but I was sort of thinking, well, you know, like at the standards of the day, that, that would have been your best outcome. You know, if you're poor, you would be lucky to have any teeth. Yeah, um, I mean, until recently, it's people may have seen it in in Les Misérables, the movie. There's that scene with Anne Hathaway sells one of her teeth, I think, uh, and that's mm -hmm. exactly what it was. Waterloo teeth was where they took teeth from corpses on battlefields and from the dead, uh, which of course pretty grim and also not necessarily a great idea because of course people often died with disease in their bloodstream, mm -hmm. and so you might end up passing syphilis or whatever to someone. But it was a, a particular technique used by a British surgeon called Hunter, 
who um, has a fantastic museum here in London, if you ever visit, it's called the Hunterian Museum, which is a surgical museum full of weird and wonderful things. Mm-hmm. He, he was very much an advocate for trying to transplant teeth from a live donor into a live donor. And um, I'm not sure how successful it was. I think some worked and some didn't. But yeah, rather than, a, rather than dentures made of hippo or wall type, <laughs> you know, you just take a tooth out of a young girl's mouth or out of a soldier and you cram it in and tie it up and hope it sticks. Yeah, that 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 really stuck with me when I was reading that. I've, I've been thinking about that a lot. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, it hasn't creeped in my nightmares yet, but it might might get there. Yeah, I mean, there's so much in this book. I mean, you talk about sort of the origins of manners and and uh, uh, news and newsprint and how that goes back so far in history and, and pets. There's this funny thing about pets. Uh, you talk about it's like. Why do why do people have pets? Like they eat food and you have to take care of them. And I was, I was thinking about my dog. I was like, why do I even have that? Oh yeah, companionship. Yeah. There's so much in this book. Um, we won't be able to get to all of it, unfortunately. But I, I want to ask you, uh, Greg, what are you working on now? Are you working on on new television work? Or are you are you working on a new book? Or, or what what are you doing now? Yeah, and so I'm juggling a few things at the moment. I um, I've just so I'm making more horrible histories. So we're on series, okay. series seven, which is cool. I've just made my kind of debut as a TV presenter here in the UK, which was interesting and uh, quite a scary experience. But um, it was quite a fun project. It's there's a brand new drama which I think is coming to the states soon called Versailles. Okay. It's all about Louis the Fourteenth, and it's uh, mm-hmm. it's pretty pretty lavish, high budget. Quite a lot of sex and violence. It's very beautiful and glamorous. And because the episodes are about 52 minutes long, and here in the UK we don't have adverts on the BBC, mm-hmm. BBC asked me and a fellow, a friend of mine who's an uh, excellent historian, to sort of present a kind of eight-minute discussion at the end of every program, every episode. Oh wow! Kind of like a sort of discussion at the end of Game of Thrones, where you sort of chat about mm-hmm. your favourite bit. But we were going to be discussing the history of what you've seen. And that was been, that's been really good fun. It's been really interesting because engaging with historical dramas is kind of where I started with my masters. You know, I was talking earlier on about Monty Python and, and um, pop culture and my, the fact that ultimately many of us access history through Downton Abbey or through movies, through Braveheart. We don't necessarily go to historians or documentaries. Even we will probably most of us will probably come across a story because Hollywood's done a film about it or there's a great new HBO drama about it. And so it felt like a really good opportunity to engage with the drama critically without ruining the drama, without saying this is all rubbish, but Mm -hmm. actually say, hey, look, I'm glad you've enjoyed it. Actually, some of this stuff is true and some of this stuff not so much and this thing is debated. So that was really fun. And then I'm also working on my next book which okay. I'm really enjoying, although it's a lot of work, so it's, it's a bit <laughs> scary. Uh, but my next book is on the history of celebrity. Okay, that's um, good. Uh, and the current working title is Dead Famous. Okay. So it's sort of a, a kind of really quite a new discipline that um, mm-hmm. has kicked up about 10 years ago in academia. Uh, a really cool thing, because obviously celebrity studies has been going on for years, because celebrity is a big thing, but until about 10 years ago, or even less than that, most sociologists would tell you celebrity was invented in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And, yes. And it's just not true. It's, you know, it goes way back, certainly to the 18th century. 
is where most sociologists and historians would put it now. But there are elements of it back in ancient Rome. There are elements mm-hmm. in ancient Greece. You see it with the way that uh, saints were venerated in the Middle Ages. People would queue by their thousands to take a relic of someone. You know, they would. It's sort of there are elements of that kind of modern Justin Bieber worship that you see with you know, Saint Clair or or, or Saint uh, Sebastian back in the 11th, 13th century or whatever. It's really fascinating and interesting. So what I'm trying to do in the book, which again, I'm trying to make fairly lighthearted and accessible, is engage with some of the kind of highbrow academic sociology, the theory of celebrity, which is fascinating and really interesting. You know, why do we have celebrities? What is celebrity? How does it work? What are the mechanisms? But I'm also trying to find ways of enjoying and having fun with the idea of, Actually, there are kind of precedents for all these people we know. And while we may think that Elvis kind of invented it or, you know, or Clara Bow in, in the 19, uh, sort of 20s, you know, the huge Hollywood stars of the early silent era. Actually, Lord Byron was really, really famous. Charles Dickens was yeah. mega famous. Uh, and there were people in the 18th century or even earlier whose name wasn't just known, but there was... There were souvenirs made about them. There was merchandise. You could, you could buy clothing. And it's not just people. There's, there's Clara the Rhino who toured Europe <laughs> in the 18th century. She was a rhino. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she toured Europe like she was Bon Jovi. She, you know, she went from mm-hmm. town to town to town. And people were obsessed with her. And they turned up in their thousands. And they wore rhino horns on their hats. And they wore rhino <laughs> clothes. And it was genuinely like a celebrity had come to town, except this celebrity weighed three quarters of a ton and, <laughs> and ate, you know, a lot of hay. So I'm trying to sort of have some fun with it. I mean, it's a huge amount of work and I'm, the deadline is a couple of years away, so it's not going to be out anytime soon. But mm. as ever, as a historian, I think it's my job to try and engage the public to make them think and enjoy history as a subject, but also to, to meet them where they are. I think it's quite easy to sort of stand and and shout and say, hey, it's really important that we all know about constitutional reforms in the 1780s. But most people, will be, most people will be like, well, is it important? I'd rather watch, you know, telly. I'd rather go see a movie. So I think mm-hmm. as a historian, sometimes uh, if you're trying to do public history, sometimes you have to go to people, go find what they're interested in, go and say, OK, what are you really into right now? And as far as I can tell, celebrity culture seems to be the most pervasive, dominant, powerful um, movement at the moment. I mean, it's hugely influencing our politics. You know, Donald Trump is a celebrity politician. Um, and I think it's, it's really fun and interesting, exciting to sort of tackle a subject that is surprising like that. You think celebrity is modern. No, it isn't. But I also think it has a kind of, uh, hopefully, a virtue to it as well, where it what I'm doing is hopefully shortening the distance between now and then and, and getting people to think critically about the fact that there's nothing new under the sun. You know, our world is perhaps more sophisticated or more complex than the past, but that's not to say that there aren't things in our world that people in the past wouldn't have recognized. Sure. I, I feel like that re- searching for resemblances is one of the most important things historians do. Things might not often be one-to-one, but they can really look very similar 
like with Donald Trump, like you were saying, like that, that's something maybe Suetonius, Suetonius was around today. I'm sure he would write a very, very good, juicy, uh, you know, a scandalous biography of, of him, you know. Um, also Hillary and also Bernie. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. If Tacitus were here or Suetonius or any of those sort of classic rumor-mongering Roman historians who loved a sort of a bit of juicy gossip, they would they would have a, a heyday with it because modern politics is so much about personality. It's so much about sound bites, about the look, about repeating mm-hmm. those kind of phrases. Uh, and I think I think it's very Roman in many ways. You know, the word candidate is a Roman word. It means you know someone who wore a, a white toga, candida. And I think there are so many things we can take from the, the ancient world and then go, hang on a minute, that, that feels really familiar. <laughs> One of my favourite facts in the book that very few people pick up on, but I just think it's quite interesting, was that the ancient Greeks, and I should say here, I'm a teetotaler, I don't drink alcohol, simply because I'm boring. It's not, I haven't had any, <laughs> I'm not recovering or anything. I, I just, I stopped when I was 19, I just couldn't be bothered. But one of the ancient things that the Greeks thought really was that they thought a politician should be a little bit drunk when giving a speech so that they couldn't lie because the Greeks and Romans believed that wine was the mirror to the to the truth. Um, in Wino Veritas is the sort of in wine there is the truth. So they Demosthenes was a great orator who was a teetotaler like me and they, they mocked him as a water drinker and they said, <laughs> don't trust this guy. And I quite like the idea that actually politicians should be a little bit tipsy when they, they speak so that they kind of have <laughs> well isn't there still a bar in, in parliament or or just around the Loads block of from parliament? there are lots of yeah there are something like seven or eight um yes drinking culture is important in, in british politics and perhaps is perhaps not so much in the states but yeah here at westminster there are seven or eight i think bars where you'll see many an mp getting drunk at the end of the evening Mm-hmm. allies and enemies you know <laughs> sort of buying around so yes alcohol again i go into in the book is that there's a whole chapter on alcohol but that's that's interesting in its own right i think is that our attitudes to drunkenness and power and politics and being open and honest with people but not getting too drunk where you suddenly get rude or leery again something that has persisted throughout history people have often written about that exactly exactly attitudes towards uh alcohol and drugs that change wildly mm. over the course of historical time. Uh, uh, it's interesting now uh, in the United States, we're having uh, referendums and, and, and voting on legalizing marijuana mm. in certain states. It's legal some states, it's illegal other states. And it's interesting, you know, if, if you look back, uh, you know, 50 years ago, they would think that you had, you know, three heads or something, but now it's just, you know, yeah, a matter of policy or a matter of tax revenue, actually. It's not even a matter of really... And also sometimes safety. You know, uh, Mm -hmm. here in the UK, we've had sort of quite interesting discussions, debates about um, what are called legal highs, which are sort of uh, modulated and manipulated forms of uh, drug that are kind of party drugs. And every now and then they can be really dangerous. And my friend, Mm -hmm. one of my best friends, actually one of my oldest friends, uh, he is a doctor, uh, anaesthetist really by, by day, but he volunteers with the air ambulance, you know, in the helicopter, and he also does medical cover at, at music festivals, particularly, okay. particularly hard dance, particularly, you know, kind of really hardcore dance tent, where he sees countless people coming out, and they've taken something that is legal or illegal, 
but it's unregulated. They don't know what's in it, mm. and they they took three of them because it didn't kick in too, it didn't kick in quick enough. So they were, they took another one and another one, and suddenly their heart stops. And he's he's kind of conservative politically. You know, he's one of my best friends, and I'm fairly to the left. We, we have discussions. He's quite conservative, but he absolutely thinks that regulation and legalization of some of these drugs is the safest way to stop people dying mm-hmm. in such droves because actually people don't know what they're taking and it's really scary but obviously there's, sure. a, mor- there's a moral position too and i know there's a moral argument for for prohibition or, or not and and i go into that in the book actually you know american prohibition and the, the failure of that but i think that's what's so interesting about being a historian is that all of these discussions and debates we see in our parliaments or in our congress they've happened before somewhere else exactly well great excellent interview and uh, best of luck with the book thank you so much